1: Racism has a cure, but racial reconciliation as we know it is not the answer. D.A. Horton unpacks how God addresses these issues and where to take it from there in his new book, Intentional. Go to dahorton.com to learn more about Intentional. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Past the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother?
2: Hey, Amen. Always good to be back on the mic. We got a great topic today that I think is going to spark a lot of conversation, but it is it is something we have to address. So many people talking you know, about it, asking about it, we got to do it.
1: I don't think I'm gonna go off this episode. You know, last week I went off. You know what I'm saying. I think I'm gonna keep it in. I'm gonna keep uh, it. I'm gonna keep it tight. You know uh, what I'm saying. Like I'm just gonna. Ah, you know, I'm yeah, not going. But I thank heard. y'all. Thank y'all so much for letting me just you know be on the mic and be myself and all that. That's I appreciate what we need. Appreciate That's y'all what listening. we need.
2: No seatbelts on this podcast.
1: Yeah, no seatbelt for our blackness. I love that analogy, by the way. We talked about blackness without a seatbelt. I love that. Um, That's really good to invoke. also want to remind you guys that Jamar was talking about that in reference to the Joy and Justice Conference. And just as a reminder, if you go to joyandjustice.com, you can purchase a digital access. You can also purchase specific talks as well from Joy and Justice and relive it. I've been reliving it, enjoying those moments there was this one moment where one particular speaker, keynote speaker, started swag surfing um, in conversation uh, <laughs> on the stage. So that's something that you have to go and buy the digital access to find out who that that is and who did that and enjoy that moment as we did <laughs> live. Yes, that was amazing. So go to joinjustice.com for that. And as Jamar was mentioning, we have an important topic to, to discuss today. and. I'll begin by asking Jamar, putting him on the hot seat. Dun dun dun. What's your personal history with politics, Jamar? Like we talked about it a little bit. I want to hear the the real thing. Like I'm trying to hear the real story. Like I want to know you was out here with a with a campaign button for a for a candidate. You know, <laughs> you volunteer for this candidate that. I want the 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 dirty. I want all of it. Come on, man. Come on, bro. Tell us, tell us everything. So, preface
2: this by saying we all have a personal history and we're all on a journey. So, my earliest—nah, uh, don't preface it. Don't preface it. Nah, preface we don't get it. you because y'all
1: preface gonna get me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think your story, your story is gonna be a lot more interesting than mine.
1: Uh, I don't know about that.
2: Yeah, man. Uh, so uh, the earliest memory I have of a presidential election, I was in grade school, and um it was ross perot was running an independent campaign huh. and he had he had actually gained some ground and i remember being intrigued because he was this millionaire businessman he sounded businessman he sounded different etc etc sounds familiar now but um back then ross perot made a go of it and then he has this really bizarre thing where he dropped out he said somebody was threatening his his daughter had, um you know was was doing something to his family, so he had to drop out. Then he came back in, but he never got the momentum that he did before. And so we held this mock election in grade school, and I think I voted for Perot. Uh, that's all I knew. Then in high school, I don't I don't remember being all that concerned about mm-hmm. it. I, mm-hmm. I do remember the way my family talked about Clinton, um, Bill Clinton, because he you know, he just had this appeal to a lot of Black people. Here we are, you know, 20, 25 years later, we see there was a Ton that was heck of problematic,
1: <laughs> right? The first Way black to... president, the first right, black right? President. I was like, What <laughs> What are y'all talking about, man?
2: That's that's what was uh, in the air. But look, you were coming off of eight years of Reagan and four years of Bush, sure. So,
1: I mean, so that boy got up with a saxophone. You was like, Oh, he, got up with the sax- yes, yes, he was
2: down, he was from Hope, Arkansas, down south. So, and and he was a Christian and he had a facility with, um you know, sort of Christian lingo and church styles that was that was actually natural because he grew up mm. in that. And he grew up around black people. So mm. um it, it, it was it it was refreshing in light of twelve years of what had just come before that. And then in college, I mean the main thing I remember being activated by was the was the um was nine eleven. And the potential to go. No, I remember. I remember uh, Al Gore and and the Hanging Chads. In oh Florida. yeah, thank you, Florida.
1: You're welcome. Uh, You're welcome on that one. Uh, <laughs> nah, man, I have nothing to do with salty. that. Still <laughs> salty. Still
2: salty. But I, rem- I rem- that was one of my first sort of um, indications at voting age of the polarization in politics. Like I always knew it was divided. I always knew people had different convictions, etc. But to see. How how much people went to the map about this, which was huge, right? Was literally the mm-hmm. presidential election is hanging in the balance. But I remember sort of observing that and being like, Wow, this is this is real. Um, people really, really deeply care about this. And then 9-11 comes and the big controversy was whether to go to war with Iraq or not. Mm-hmm. And um man were you on that
1: train, you were like, nah, we gotta go get them.
2: Uh I I didn't know enough to to listen to several different sources. So I'm at a school where the the uh, one of the slogans is "God Country Notre Dame," mm-hmm. and Notre Dame has a very big, long, and robust history of having an ROTC program, Reserve Officer Training Corps. So we had this huge military. So so it was almost it wasn't a question for for a lot of folks on campus, and I was just like, um, okay. I, I mean, we need to we need to we need to show people that we're not just going to lay down and take this was what I was thinking, what that really meant, how, how, you know, senators would vote and whatnot. That wasn't so much on my mind. It was much more on the emotional, you know, trying to be patriotic kind of level. Right.
1: Right. Um, Mm, That's interesting.
2: Yeah. After that, after that, I really started to get, uh, when I came down to the Delta and teaching Um, that's when I started to understand a little bit better the importance of local politics, although I wasn't involved because, like... 12, 14 hours a day. I'm just, I'm at school. So I didn't really have time to, to learn much about candidates. Uh, but I did start meeting them because it was a small town and, um, everybody running for mayor or city council or state rep they are they're in town. So that was interesting, um, to say, okay, these are real people, but I distinctly remember in presidential elections for years, res- registering as an independent, um, voting, at local state and and national for both Republicans and Democrats. So I didn't have a sort of dogmatic view of it. I kind of went with who I thought had an appeal, um, and, and took it from there, but I didn't know much of the deep divides that, that I now know in terms of policy differences between Democrats and Republicans, mm-hmm. um, especially on a national wow. level. So, so yeah, man, that brings you up to about the present and,
1: uh, um, what, what clicked for you? Like, what was the thing that kind of flipped that switch? Because now, I mean, you just basically like a Marcus Garvey. like, uh, <laughs> like <laughs> nah. but I mean, you're very much more like politically inclined and in tune. Like, what, what flipped that switch for you? Was it 2016 or was it, you know, the Obama presidency? Like, what kind of changed all that for you?
2: Yeah, I was definitely in tune for the Obama presidency. I was a, around a lot of young white people. Progressives and you know they had the stickers on the car. They were donating and active. I met my friend Sanford Johnson, who was really into politics. He actually ran for state office, didn't end up win- winning, but to this day he's heavily involved. Um, he was he was part of a, um, a nonprofit uh, policy research um, organization in Mississippi. So talking to him and then. It was a combination of things. It was uh, Ferguson and Black Lives Matter, and just looking at how policy is affecting Black people in certain environments. And then beyond that, it started in really started picking up in 2015 with the Republican primary because you had this huge slate of people that all of these white Republicans were talking about, especially white evangelicals. And I'm like, all right, let me let me see what this about. And mm-hmm. that's when I kind of started following it. And then as we got closer and closer to the 2016 election, I'm like, they really serious about this Trump dude. <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> I know y'all not finna do this. Right? I mean, like, is not
1: really happening.
2: I mean, are y'all just going to be not that really, late this? And and so from there, I've just, and and obviously this president has done a... Fantastic slash horrible job of keeping himself in the news and changing like mm-hmm. decades long standing policy with a tweet, you know. So yeah, kind yeah. you kind of can't look away.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting for me because when I was growing up as an only child, I was an only child for about ten years, and one of the things that I wanted to do was have intelligent conversations with adults. And so what I would do is I would read the newspaper from cover to cover, and this is why it's so important to diversify how our kids read and the sources that they pick because I used to read our local news journal which is decidedly most of it comes from more of a conservative perspective and then I would listen to talk radio at night which is you know led me directly into radio broadcasting which has now led me into to podcasting and the talk radio that I would listen to was decidedly very both conservative evangelical and also conservative politically but I learned so much through that And I learned how to craft an argument and how to craft a dialogue and a discussion and conversation. I used to just inhale all these hours upon hours of talk radio and also reading the newspaper. And so the first time I was just in this mentality, because my parents weren't really activists on the the Black side of things, they had been saved and also discipled in predominantly white evangelical environments. And so because of that, they had naturally conservative Politics, even while ad- acknowledging and admitting that racism existed and that they had experienced some of the worst forms of it. And there was a moment in middle school, this was at the actual Bush Gore election time. There was a moment in middle school where, you know, we only had a few black classmates at my, you know, Christian school. And one of the others, like most of us all were pastor's kids. Like I think actually all of the black people who were in my class were pastor's wow. kids. And, um, you know, pastor's kids just send their kids to this school so that they could get great education, phonetics, English, articulation, et cetera, so they could be better set up to go into whatever they wanted to. And I'll never forget one of the young ladies who was, it was a pastor's daughter um, of a very large primitive Baptist church in our city. Um, she was having this conversation with one of the white classmates. And this is like seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade, something like that. And one of the classmates is like, you know, what are you, who are you voting for? Who are your parents voting for? She's like, well, I can't vote obviously, but you know, my parents, who do you think? Like we voting for Al Gore. And he was like, what? Like, and he just was like aghast, Shocker. like this white student. And he was like, Gore's a liar. And she looked right back up. Said, Bush is a liar. Oh. And they were going back. So I'm like, "Yo, what? what is happening right here? Because for me, again, the perspective was always coming from this conservative lens. So I saw the passion in her face and in her voice. And it was just, you know, I guess my first like trust black women moment, I guess, you know, (laughs) but, um, so I saw this passion in her face and I was like, man, so what? Like, and so then I started doing this in investigation and then what my school and what the evangelical environment told me, what the conservative Christian environment told me you need to read Thomas Soul. Okay, like, that's who it you need to read. Like you need to read Thomas Soul. You need to read, you know, black rednecks and white liberals, and you need to read all these books by him because he's a voice you need to listen to. And you, and what about Condoleezza Rice and what about Clarence Thomas and what? A, and so they were presenting a very sunk black image of political involvement. They were almost force feeding it on me. And then they would kind of make a, a public example of other black students who spoke of liberal ideas or who spoke of a democratic leaning. And when they challenged the teachers, the teachers would kind of mock them publicly or no. make a spectacle of them. Um, in a way that, you know, I'm I'm still recovering from now that I know what it, you know, what it was and kind of the misuse of power that. That happened there and the racism that's in that. And so, as I'm processing all this, I'm just inhaling it, you know, hook, line, and sinker. And so, I'm a natural contrarian. So, and, and there's a lot of this that happens. I think we have to take a step back and say, when we see a lot of black conservatism or staunch black republicanism, oftentimes it's a compensation for a lack of personal credibility in the black community. Wow. So, we compensate by pushing back and saying well I'm going to be a contrarian you guys are just slaves that's what it is you guys are slaves on the plantation really because we're insecure about our own blackness and we don't feel like we fit in and so we adopt the politics that kind of shames people for black pathology right and so that's what I was kind of doing i was like oh man well, well if i don't fit in then i'm just going to inhale all these talking points and listen to bill o'reilly and you know do all this other stuff And I was thinking about a political journey. I was like, man, I could be a great politician. Like I feel like the people that told me that, they were like, man, you should think about being a senator one day and we get you on this political track. And I don't know when it was, but there was a moment where I sat back and I, I volunteered for a campaign. It was a Republican campaign or something. And I said, something is off with this. And I didn't know if it was the politics of it or the kind of the corruption or the... I saw some behind the scenes things. I was like, I don't really know if this is for me, but what I can do is I can be kind of a spokesperson for these types of, you know, people and and this type of ideology. So went off to college, went off to college, obviously, you know, very famous evangelical university in Virginia. And the first semester that I'm there, it's the first Obama election. So I'm here at the first Obama election and I'm like, oh, "Okay, so we riding with your boy, we riding with McKay, right? Like, that's what we do. I'm being very honest. Like, we just ride like, with McKay, it, right? You because Obama, he's like- You've been so honest, but you, <laughs> you didn't say the name of your school. Oh, man, you, y'all know it's Liberty, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> y'all know that, okay? Y'all know it's Ballwell. Ballwell's place, uh, you know? Me and Adam Keeley. Uh, okay, uh, let me put Adam out there. I ain't somebody. the only one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I ain't the only one, okay? But anyway, so we out here, you know, I'm like, oh, we just ride with McKay. So I read all these books about Barack Obama when he came onto the scene. I was captivated by him because he was such a, an eloquent speaker. And the same way in which people again, you start to parrot white evangelical audiences, because the same way that they interacted with Obama was the way I interacted with him. Oh, he's in, he's articulate and he's eloquent, but he doesn't have any substance. He's and too new. I read his memoir. Center, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Community organizer and you know, read The Audacity of Hope and Dreams from My Father and all these other things about that he's ever written and and I didn't understand it because I didn't I wasn't given the grid to understand it. Yeah. I was just given a white evangelical grid. And this is the trick. And this is why education is so important because if you get a grid, you know, Kane Hope Felder, who recently passed the way he calls it a dog in the bone, right? He says you go to these evangelical seminaries and what they do is they give you the grid to find the answers that they pre-programmed for you to find. Whoa. So, it's like you don't have no other way of finding. You're going to find a bone, like, because <laughs> that's what they buried for you to find. Then they gave you the directions to find it. And my mentality was okay, well, if you only given me a conservative evangelical perspective on politics, that's what I'm going to find. And so that's what I did. And I started parroting it. And I didn't have the grid, the rubric to interpret anything the president was saying charitably. So, I'll never forget the night that he actually won the first election, all the black people in the auditorium. Rushed down to the bottom of the auditorium. They were screaming, hollering. They were celebrating. And I remember the way in which the white students were looking at them and the way in which they characterized them actually made me say, there's something more to this than just ideological disagreement. Like one guy was saying, he was actually one of my, I think he was my prayer leader or my spiritual life director or something. He was like, I just hope everything he does fails. Oh, man. Just everything he does. Like, that's just it. Just, and then he was he was quoting, uh, what was that movie? I think it was Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, when Padme, she says, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Wow. Like, he was like, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause.
2: My goodness.
1: And I remember I sat back I was like, this seems a little, and I felt weird because I'm the only black person in the room. But I'm like, okay, well, I, I wasn't for him, but it felt kind of weird. Second go around, second election that he has, I didn't vote. For the Republican can't have voted third party, but I remember the Republican National Convention, and at the Republican National Convention, when I was watching it, I remember sitting in my room, I was watching the television, and I took a deep sigh as I watched speaker after speaker, and even Condoleezza Rice, I think she was keynote that year, speaker after speaker after speaker, and I said, "This is not for me. Hmm. Like this is just not. They're not talking to me." Like, and when I I said it out loud, I was like, yo, this is not for me. And I cut it off. Normally I'm, you know, a political junkie. I just look, read all that, watch it all. And I remember sitting back and saying, why, why are they not speaking to me? They're not speaking to a 22 year old black man. You know, they're not speaking to a, however old I was, you know, man from the South who has this particular cultural heritage. They're speaking to older white people. And I saw, like, they're speaking to older white Christians. They're speaking to older white people. And then when Obama wins and they show this coalition of people and it's diverse yeah. and it's... Now, it again, inspiring. right, all, all these, these things are all intellectual. Like, or these things are all, excuse me, these things are all emotional at first. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it's just all emotion. It's just all cultural affiliation. At first, there was some emotion because you don't think the Republicans are using emotion <laughs> in in their favor all politics you know, intersects with emotion. So yeah, there was some emotion involved. What, is seeing the first but black then president? I, yeah, well, not just that, but also like the way in which people talk about black Christian allegiance mm. or black Christian identification as though it's like the Democrats have some sort of magical, mythical spell on black churches and black Christians. And it's just plantation mentality. And you guys are just emotionally appealed to. And, and it wasn't even, it was before Obama. Like that was still the mentality, even with Clinton, with Gore, with, with everyone who came before him. And I just remember saying like, there has to be something different. Like, why is it that these churches, why is it that these churches and these people are believing so differently from me, but I look up to them, like what's going on here? And so it it led me on this deep excavation. Mm. You know, and then I found people like J.D. Otis Roberts and I found people like Kane Oakfelder Felder and I found, you know, really did a study on King and started to unpack who King was, started to unpack Fannie Lou Hamer. And and I just started seeing all these things and I just was like, oh, wow. So my history and my heritage, the heritage that I keep claiming, even as I'm working out this complicated relationship to blackness, it's it's not a politically conservative heritage, <laughs> And so I'm like, what does this mean for me? It's diverse, like, because there's black conservatives, there's all that, but like, what does this mean for me? And it led me down this journey, man, of really reapproaching and unlearning and deconstructing what I had been taught. And I don't wanna say it's just simply decolonizing, because I don't even know if I've been doing that right or I've done that right. But it was a true, honest addressing of relearning basic things. Like, what does it mean to have? A political theology. What does it mean to have a political theology? Like, what does it mean to have morality? What does it mean to have ethics? And I had to relearn that away from what white evangelicals had taught me. And it led me to this place of I had always been an independent. Like, oh, you're supposed to be an independent. You're supposed to be independent. You're supposed to be an independent. You're not supposed to like either of these parties. But it led to this mentality of people weren't telling the truth. So they would say, man, I'll vote for anybody who represents, right? And I'm like, no, you won't, because you have a litmus test. Like, no, you're going to vote for Republicans. And I knew that, even as they said that, like, I'd vote for a Democrat. I was like, no, you won't. And even when I was a conservative, I was like, man, why y'all lying? Like, why do we have to lie about what we really think? We're Republicans, right? We're conservatives, right? You're a conservative, right? And it led to this mentality of... Yeah, you're telling me that politics is sticky business, but at the same time, you're leaning towards one party and you're not giving any other ideology or any other thought process a fair shake and a charitable take. So anyway, that leads me all you know to now, but yeah, we can get into that later.
2: Yeah, I just want to put this one biographical piece in because one of the things you asked was like, for me, what was a turning point, whatever I want to say it was, it was either 2015 or 16, and I'll never forget the, the, the moment. Uh, it was right after church at our multi-ethnic church, and I was walking out, and in the parking lot, there was this bumper sticker in support. It was either of a Republican candidate or a, a policy that Republicans in the state were proposing. And I remember walking by the car with this bumper sticker in support of this Republican person or policy and saying to myself, you know, there are going to be hundreds of people walking out of this church, and no one's going to bat an eye at that bumper sticker. But Mm -hmm. if it was in support of a Democratic candidate or a Democratic policy- Hell to pay. Yeah. Folks will be pulling you aside by the elbow and saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, can I tell you about Jesus Christ? Just preach the gospel to you, like that's deep. That that's how deep it was. You know, wouldn't have been that blatant per se, but it would have been the assumption would be well, clearly you don't understand the Bible and God and ethics and morality the way you should as a Christian because you're not supporting a Republican and conversely, you are supporting a Democrat. And I I can remember saying, if we are the church, then somebody should be able to have a blue bumper sticker or a red bumper sticker and it's okay right like we can have a difference of opinion but nobody's saying to the other person like you're not christian
0: this episode is brought to you in part by pittsburgh theological seminary pittsburgh theological seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community pts students are preparing for ministry with master of divinity master of arts Doctor of Ministry and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit.
2: And and let's be clear, this is not a, a an equally sort of, this is not an equal criticism, right? Sure, Again, sure. you can have that bumper sticker in support of a Republican cause and no one's going to say anything. It's if you have the other party there that it becomes a problem. So that's when that was one of the critical moments where I was like, we need to actually address this in the church. Yeah. Because yeah. it shouldn't be like this.
1: And, and we have to be honest about this, especially in Southern Christianity. Southern Christianity romanticizes conservatism. Like it just does. It romanticizes it. And it makes it seem like it's the superior way. So like it makes human beings who are republican politicians are held in a certain light the way in which reagan was characterized the way in which bush was characterized it was the way it was almost like this otherworldly demigod status and it was almost as though there was there was this elevated sense of this is what manhood looks like this is what christianity looks like this is what patriotism looks like this is what Masculinity is. And it was weird. Like, it was almost like I, I couldn't separate whether or not it was their politics, whether it was their whiteness or their Christianity, or all three, like mixed in with one. Obviously.
2: Yeah. White Christian nationalism.
1: Exactly. So it was like that very interesting way of why are we romanticizing this? I mean, even, you know, someone like Sarah Palin, it was just, she was just romanticized. Like, it was just, it was weird. And I was like, why is this like a thing? Like, what? And it was almost uncritical in the sense of they were revered as leaders, not just of a country, not just leaders of a party, but leaders of of us. They represent who we are. And so it was it was almost this very thing that they critiqued in black Christians for being quote unquote puppets of the Democrats. They were also parroting themselves. Like they were also saying, oh, well, well, this is this is our version of that, an emotional. Romanticizing of this candidate, and so it led me to, you know, as I was leaving conservative politics and kind of unlearning that that mentality, it just led me to this mentality of like, so where am I, where am I supposed to land? And the way in which I conceived of it was so interesting, Jamar, because I said, well, I'm never going to be a Democrat, like I'll never uh, be a liberal, mm-hmm. like oh, no, not that. But where am I supposed to? And I was like, why do I think that? You know, so because Mm -hmm. it was this mentality that if you leave, you know, the Republican side or the conservative side of of a Christian view of politics, that you had to be neutral. You know, you had to be non-party affiliated, you had to be independent. And I was like, where does that come from? And then the mentality was you need to be, and this was, you know, the title of the episode of what we've been talking about, politically homeless. And it kind of revived itself over the past couple of weeks because Um, In a Democratic forum, and a Democratic presidential candidate forum on CNN, it was actually an LGBTQ forum town hall that was um, hosted by the Human Rights Campaign. There was a Democratic presidential candidate named Beto O'Rourke from Texas who actually called for religious institutions that oppose same-sex marriage to lose their tax-exempt status. So this is what he said. He said, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we're going to make that a priority and we're going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. And when people said it was like, he had touched the third third rail. rail. And, And I remember when I listened to it, because here's, here's, you know, obviously we're black men, you know, we're married to women, we're, we don't identify as LGBTQ. So we, it's different for us. So that was a town hall specifically for those addressing core concerns of the LGBTQ community, just like we address core concerns of the Black community. And so we were, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, I view it differently, obviously. So it's like a different perspective. So I'm not saying, you know, my initial reaction wasn't really impassioned. It was just like, yo, I think that's probably illegal. <laughs> like, I think that's probably. I was like, "Yo, I think that's unconstitutional," but I don't know. Like, I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." But everyone's going nuts about it. They were like, "Oh my well, goodness!" It was.
2: God. Yeah, with good reason. I mean, politically speaking, constitutionally speaking, it is extremely problematic, and it's a question that has yet to be completely addressed in the courts. And uh, the other reason people were reacting so strongly, particularly white evangelicals, is. Um, it, it, sort of going back to to what you were talking about before uh the glorification of Republicans, part of it goes to many Republicans self-identified as. Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, and they were seen as champions of an aggrieved constituency, that being white evangelicals. You could throw white evangelical men in there in particular too. So when these candidates got up there and talked about uh, God and and talked about the Second Amendment and all of these things, it was seen as, they're representing me. Those are my people. And On the flip side of that, the aggrieved part says, see, when folks make progressive laws uh, uh, regarding LGBTQ, they're coming after Christian institutions. They're coming after churches next. So when Beto said that, everybody was like, see, we told you so. So that was, I think, part of it.
1: And it was interesting because I I perceived it as kind of a Hail Mary politically, but also as kind of like the place where the primaries are the place where people kind of give – whether it's fringe opinions or strong opinions, one way or the other, to kind of push the party one, you know, more right or more left. And then the actual nominee kind of pulls them more to the center. You know, the actual nominee kind of pulls them away from that extreme because they have to appeal to independent voters or Republican voters who might vote for them or Democratic voters um, who are from a different party. And so I perceived it as, oh well, he's just trying to, you know, basically get support, trying to appeal to a group of people who would agree with him. But people were going just—they were just bringing up all these things, and then some of the candidates, whether it's Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren, they said, "Well, we don't—we don't agree with that. Like, you know, that's—that's that's a little bit far, and that's probably unconstitutional. I don't think you realize what he was saying." And so I was just watching all this, but it revived this mentality and it revived this language of political homelessness. And it's always interesting because I have not heard that from Black churches.
0: Yeah, I was like, "Are Black
1: churches?" Like do black churches call themselves politically homeless, not saying that they don't see themselves you know in somewhat of exile, but do they call themselves politically homeless and so I just wanted to address the issue and and bring up this perspective, this question: is political homelessness a viable black Christian perspective for politics um and so I just wanted to bring that up for us to to talk about, but before we get into that. Let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Stop saying reconciliation. Reconciliation implies that diverse groups of people were at one time at a point of conciliation. But that hasn't been the case. As the people of God, we're the only humans who have experienced true reconciliation. There is no one better to enter this tension with hope and solutions. What does God say about racism? In the Bible, he addresses it, but it's not our 21st century Americanized version of racism. He gets at the core, the sin of partiality. And when we really understand that, we can learn how to embrace our kingdom ethnicity and teach others to do the same. Read Intentional by D.A. Horton as he breaks down how God addresses these issues and the practical guidance for where we go from there. Following Jesus holistically means holding in tension our unique ethnic heritages While being part of a new humanity, go to dahorton.com to learn more about his new book, Intentional. And we're back on past the mic. Is political homelessness a viable Black Christian perspective when it comes to politics and elections and things of that nature? So, Jamar, I wanna hear from you because you're the historian. I wanna hear some, some historical perspective. On black churches and their involvement in politics. And I specifically say black churches because probably should have said this before, but I say black churches because I think there's a there's a few different categories here. Black Christians who have grown up in predominantly white Christian environments are probably gonna have a different perspective, like like I did. All right, They're gonna have a different perspective than historic black churches, right? It's just Different discipleship, different theology, different perspective. And even though my church was predominantly black, where I was receiving, you know, a vast majority of my perspective on the world and society and theology, it was from white evangelical institutions. So specifically historic black churches, how would they view politics?
2: Yeah. So we we definitely need to come back to you know the the question. What what do you mean by viable, if you will? But what question I want to.
1: I left it open ended intentionally, Jamal.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yes, I'm complicating dialogue. Uh, I'm scoring part of the plan. The yes. <laughs> yes. Well, the the as I think about this, one of the first things I think about is what has been the historic position or positions, really, of Black churches and Black Christians, and. It's been very partisan. Honestly, if you look at the data, Black people in general are some of the most reliably partisan groups there is. We, We tend to always vote for one particular party. In modern times, it's the Democratic Party, but in the 19th century, it was the Republican Party. Now, Look, if you don't know the history, Google it. They had very different party platforms in the 19th century. The Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. It was the party of emancipation. It was the party of the union, et cetera, et cetera. All of that comes into play uh, when you think about the fact that for a long time, politics was actually out of reach for most black people. We couldn't vote. We couldn't get involved. We were pawns. We were counted as as three fifths of a person uh, for, for the purposes of uh, determining the number of, of political officials representing a territory, but we were ourselves were not allowed to vote. So this has been a huge thing. And then when we finally do get the right to vote in the reconstruction amendments after the civil war, the, the party affiliation is natural. When you have one party that is the party of the union and of uh, passing laws to give black men, men at that time, the right to vote, and you have another party literally running on a party platform that says this is the white man's country, which is what happened in one of the uh, presidential elections soon after the Civil War, the choice is easy. The choice is easy. So I just want to read you one short piece from Frederick Douglass, a former enslaved Black person who emancipated himself, went on to be a, a great orator and writer and um, uh, He's grown in popularity even now. He's growing in even popularity today. even now. He's getting more and more <laughs> known. Um, <laughs> so uh, he was writing a letter to someone um, right near the, the uh, Republican – Uh, National Convention uh, in 1874, 1875, somewhere around there. And he says to this person, he says, I'm thought to be an independent politically. And so I am, but I am an independent inside of the Republican Party. I can have all the independence I want inside of the Republican Party. I am both independent and dependent. Um, I do not take a step in life that I am not dependent on somebody or something. In politics, I am dependent upon one or the other political party, which is critical, right? So he's saying we got to pick a side. Um, it, it, right. When it comes right. to politics, I got to depend on one party or the other. Then he goes on to say, I am foolish enough to think that the Republican Party may as safely be trusted with the destiny of the republic and the rights of colored people as the Democratic Party. And in this, I know I'm right. For the life of me, I cannot see how any honest colored man who has brains enough to put two ideas together can allow himself under the notion of independence to give aid and comfort to the Democratic Party. Woe to the colored... Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. He goes on. Woe to the colored people of this country when the Republican Party shall triumph in spite of the treacherous votes of colored men. Bad is our condition now is it would be worse then. so
1: wow he let he let off a full clip bro yeah. like, wow okay my let me read you one last line so,
2: he said my ad-
1: yeah my away.
2: advice to colored men everywhere is to stick to the republican party tell your wants hold the party up to its profession but do your utmost to keep it in power in state and nation so you want to talk about a partisan <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I just find that so telling Absolutely. because he's he is he is not only black, he is not only politically involved. He's a Christian. Remember, at the end of his autobiography, he's the one who said he despises this, uh, you know, women beating slaveholding Christianity. That it's 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 the furthest. Christianity of the right. land. Yep. Um so he has this scathing indictment of of Christianity as practiced by white people and he's somebody who knew firsthand enslavement and beating and all that came with it and when he gets out and when he is first able to exercise the vote he is not abashed. He is unashamed of being called a republican and thinks that other people of color other black people if you don't vote for this party that is clearly more open minded when it comes to racial uh race relations then then you're actually doing harm to black people
1: hmm. and and it's interesting because it seems like this is a common thread not just with Douglas but with other people as well and one of the voices who shaped you know my theology and also my approach to politics as a black Christian has been j d otis roberts and Roberts was a you know, black theology professor and has been in was in conversation with James Cohn and Dwight Hopkins and you know, other people who are at the kind of the wave of the 20th century black theological movement. And in his book, which is amazing, The Prophethood of Black Believers, which I recommend everyone to um, read if you want to better understand kind of where he comes from, where Black theology lands in some of this. Um, he has a chapter on politics, and I want to read a, a selection from it. And he says here, as we gather up the ideological threads and apply these to political action, it is important to remind ourselves that the Black perspective is holistic. Even our way of thinking is both and. It is a misnomer to juxtapose self-help to programs of uplift. We see clearly that we should teach our children to be industrious. At the same time, we must struggle to remove obstructions to their freedom. Government programs to help the oppressed should be evaluated apart from the effort and ability of people to improve their own life situation. The involvement of Black churches in the political arena illustrates a comprehensive approach to survival and liberation. And so it's interesting because Roberts is talking about this from the perspective of a survival and liberation idea. Now, here's, here's the point. The point about Douglas and the point about Roberts and the point about Hamer and the point about King and the point about so many other Black Christians and Black people who approach politics, it's rooted in an understanding of the country that they yes, live in. say that. It's not rooted in approaching politics in the abstract and the Or romantic ideas. Because the, dis- yeah. Or, yeah, exact, or romantic ideas. Because every vote, every election has deep consequences for a marginalized, oppressed, suffering people group. So a people group that has historically been marginalized over the course of four hundred years is not going to be unaffected by any political vote that happens that dictates and determines their healthcare and their economics and their education and their safety and their policing and criminal justice and their incarceration. It's going to affect that deeply, and so Black people have not had the privilege to approach it from the theoretical and the abstract. in an existential
2: way too, um, right? It, like like all. All exactly of these elections, all of these policies, um, especially at the national level, they're going to affect everyone to some extent or another, but this is what what you're talking about. It's not, it's not a mere inconvenience, right? Like my taxes went up and I don't like that, but I can survive it. No, we're actually talking about whether I have the right to vote, whether I can sue in court, whether um, I can, if uh, somebody is lynched, I have recourse in the criminal justice system, right? Like literal life and death matter. So I don't want people to think like, oh, well, everybody's affected.
1: Yes, but not in the same way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, absolutely. And so we have to, you know, Roberts even says in this chapter, he says, you know, we must not stake, you know, all, all our political perspective on one issue goals wow. you know, at the expense of wider humanitarian concerns, like wow. clearly, speaking majority, right? yes. <laughs> clearly speaking to the majority, right? Clearly speaking to the more majority, because the mentality is, yes, it affects everyone. And I don't want to trivialize those concerns. I think that's a mistake sometimes we can make. I don't want to trivialize the concerns of human beings who have you know who may vote one way or another for for whatever reason but I do want to acknowledge that a suffering marginalized historical a historically suffering marginalized oppressed community is going to vote for their survival and their liberation because it is right. constantly in peril. Yes. And so I think that's for us to take a step back and say. So my question then is from that. So if I'm seeing, these are just two examples. I mean, we could go down the the line with with Hamer, with King, what have you. And it's not to say that that Black people have just been loyal to one party just for the sake of loyalty to one party, but I think they're loyal to who's going to give them the best chance to achieve liberation and survival. So the question is, where does political homelessness come from? And here's my theory. My theory is the idea of political homelessness in our current conception is a white evangelical concept. Hmm. And what I mean by that is I think it is a coping mechanism. We all come up with coping mechanisms to try to figure out and try to interpret our circumstances. I think it's a coping mechanism for people who have been historically conservative, but now can no longer stomach Donald Trump and don't know what to do. Goodness. And so because of that, what, what happens is, okay, well, now, now now we it's it's important for us to say. I think it's important for us to say. And again, you know, yes, there are problematic parts of parties. We know that. Um, if you want to hear us talk about abortion, some people don't know we did a episode, very long episode oh, on abortion it. in the black community. So go listen to that. But it's important for us to say that. Ronald Reagan and George Bush and George H.W. Bush were not necessarily bastions of human flourishing when it comes to people, um, oppressed groups as well. So it's important for us to say that they didn't actually do that better than Donald Trump does. But now Trump is so overt with it. like He's just so in your face about it. And so because of that, and because of his characterization, because he crosses more lines than they would have crossed... Now people are saying, well, I can't be a part of this party. Now, my instinct is to say, okay, I understand I agree with you, but my side, my secondary instinct is, no, you need to stay in the party and fight. Right. Because if you cede ground, you're ceding ground to extremism. Nah, if you're a Republican, be a Republican. Stay in there and fight. It's the same thing about being an evangelical, right? Nah, well, if if you was an evangelical, stay in evangelicalism and fight it. Like fight it out because it depends. If you seed evangelicalism over to extremists, well then now there's nothing that's going to you're leaving a power vacuum and people who are extremists are gonna come in and take that power vacuum. So be a Republican. So just- but make sure that you're advocating for people who are marginalized, even as you're Republican. That's my and that's my secondary instinct, right? Because I'm saying you can't just vacate the space because it got difficult for you. You have to say, I will stand up. And this is, this is what's, this was actually so difficult is yes, you could vote for another party. Yes, you could vacate the party. And they could feel that. But why don't you overthrow the candidate who let it happen by voting in your same party so that you can make sure that that party is not succumbing to the more extreme, racist, xenophobic voices within it? Like otherwise, we just gonna have extreme parties, right? Like that's just you know, Michael Weirs made that argument, other people have made that argument. I just feel like, nah, stay and fight in your space because we actually need people tactically not to cede that ground up to extremism. That's one of my instincts. But go ahead.
2: Yeah, so I think um there are some th- things I would add to that. So so with the evangelical thing, right? There are Certain instances, and I'm speaking mainly of white evangelicals, probably younger ones, in which they found themselves in evangelical spaces, and um, they didn't help craft it, so to speak, right? Like they were born into it, absorbed it sort of, you know, un- unthinkingly, almost like we did with some 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 aspects of it, right? And then in that sense, I think there is a decision to make, Um you do have to think about some some such some situations are toxic right so don't hear us saying you know stay in evangelical actual relational spaces nah, that are toxic
1: general general right. principle general right. principle
2: right. But we do need to speak ex- explicitly to the people who really did help craft this stuff, right? For for the folks who helped form the religious right and the moral majority in the 70s and 80s, for the people who were just championing folks like Reagan and Bush and Bush uh, the younger and, and even Trump to a certain extent, right? Now that you get to someone who's, honestly, who's, much of whose policies you don't disagree with, right? You may not like the border separation, But a lot of the economic policy, a lot of the immigration policy, till it got to Christian refugees, you didn't really disagree all that much. Those are the folks, I think, who really need to think deeply about, okay, if Trump is a bridge too far, then you need to stay and reform that party. But the other thing is this, why stay? Because I think that question Uh, pertains also to Christians in certain churches, in certain evangelical spaces, et cetera. I think what's different is Mm -hmm. we have a two-party system. So it was just like that Frederick Douglass quote: I'm going to be dependent on either the Republican or the Democratic Party. I think what a lot of white evangelicals, and to a certain extent, Black Christians in these evangelical spaces have retreated to, is to say, I'm politically homeless. I don't claim a party. Therefore, I won't get involved in sort of reforming or informing either party as well. Yeah. I think that's a mistake because it's a two-party system. It has been for more than 150 years, right? A democ- uh, An independent candidate can, can lodge a bid at the national level, but no one's even reached double digits for decades, right? So right. Um, if you want to be just historic, just historically accurate. It's going to be a Democrat or a Republican who wins, and so then the question is, what do you do as a Christian in a two-party system if you if you if the alternative is not to sort of step back and not get involved at all? What do you do with a two-party system?
1: Well, and and I think that's that's a key point, and I think it's also important for us to kind of take a step back and say, well, a, a removal from one party. You know, you removing a whether it's a protest vote or what have you from one party can not actually empower like that. You know that party, yep. um, and they can't empower systems that disenfranchise your neighbors, um, who are predicated on survival, not just you know convenience. But I think it's also important for us to acknowledge that there is a level of sophistication in politics, and this is why I think it's so. It's been very troubling to kind of retrack and readdress the latent biases that I was taught in Christian evangelical environments, because it's very difficult for me to find the sophistication in it. Huh. It seems like there was a, a sense in which they wanted to remove sophistication. So they wanted to use whether it was obscure Bible verses or stories to make kind of a reductive theological and political argument.
2: My goodness. Um,
1: so, you know, people say, oh, God used Cyrus, <laughs> you know, and God used, he can use Trump. And it's like, well, well, yes, God did use Cyrus, but how are you drawing this line? Like, where does this line come from? And is that the only thing that informs how we view him? And is that, and it's like weird. It's, it's almost like, you know, when we have these conversations about, police brutality. People are like, Romans 13, Romans 13. It's like, is that the only verse that-
2: And that's the like, only it's application and like,
1: interpretation. Yeah. Exactly. Is that the only interpretation? Is that the only application? Are we missing something here? Um, and and so I think we're missing the sophistication. And I think there is a sense in which people lose the sophistication to say, listen, I we can all agree these parties are not perfect. And we can all agree these candidates are not perfect. And we can all agree that we don't agree with some of the policies. But let's just be honest here. Like this this person or that person, like when I watch the, let's say the Democratic presidential debates, I'm like, well, this is interesting. Even when I watch the Republican presidential debates, I was like, yo, this is kind of interesting because there's sophistication in the application of these policies, right? Mm. There's a different approach to healthcare. There's a different approach to foreign policy. There's a different approach to domestic policy. And so for me, you're missing out on so much of the conversation because you're reducing all the politics to one issue, or you're reducing all the politics to one perspective that biases you against having any sort of engagement. And so you just summarily dismiss. And that's what I see a lot of. Like People, they don't watch the debates. They watch the debates for the most incendiary leftist thing. And then they just discard all of it. See, I, I told you, it's like, well, this is the Democratic Party. Like, what do you expect? Like <laughs> I mean, we live in the real world here. They're not they're not thinking about Christianity. It probably should a little bit more. They're not doing that. So, but we still exist in a two-party system. So, what am I gonna do? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to figure this thing out? And this thing, you know, and I think so, I think that level of sophistication, it's important for us to kind of Work the spectrum of what's being argued so that we can charitably represent it, even if you disagree with it. Um, And that takes an engaged mind, not someone who's withdrawn to like, oh, we're just going to float out here by ourselves and disengage and I'm done with politics. Um, I think that actually you miss something in that.
2: Yes, it, it presents a very simple, simplistic way as if there's a way to be involved in politics in a pluralistic fallen broken world that that is perfectly blameless right like there's a sense in which I mean I want to be careful when I say this, but there's a sense in which wh- whoever you vote for, you know you're you're implicated in their actions, right which then makes it incumbent upon us to stay active and not just vote one time or whatever. Um, but there's no way around that right like there's no way around that there's there's not going to be even if it's a christian candidate somebody who perfectly lines up with your beliefs and 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 even within that somebody who perfectly like there there are so many ways to interpret the bible so someone can say my politics is completely informed by my faith and yet the way they interpret certain principles and certain passages wouldn't line up to the way you would interpret politics and your faith so that complexity never goes yeah. away despite our attempts at simplifying it. The other thing is this it that sort of politically homeless thing um is sort of very detached from the black from black experiences in the United
1: States, right? Black people I don't know, like it feels <laughs> I'm careful to say this, but if. Feels like black church erasure. Like it feels, yeah, it feels like black church erasure a little bit. Um, because it's like all Christian, because I, I don't have a problem with someone saying, okay, I'm politically homeless. I, I should make this clear. I have a problem with someone saying all Christians should be politically homeless. And it's like, what? Like, how does this work for us? Like, how does this serve us? And who came up with this and who is this for? Like, is this for you to interpret now leaving the place of, you know, your your place of political affiliation, or is this for all Christians? Because it seems like it just serves you. It just seems like it just serves your conscience. Um, so that you're not perceived to be a certain I, way. But yeah, it doesn't really serve us. I mean, know? there's
2: never been an ideal party or an ideal candidate from like a black Christian perspective, particularly on racial topics, right? Like we know good and well that the Demo- the current Democratic Party has plenty of racism and bad policies for black people and other people of color. But there's one party that is at least making gestures and overtures at wanting to be racially and ethnically diverse and valuing that. And there's another party that's not only not doing that, they're making it clear that they don't want that kind of diversity. And if you don't believe me, just look at the the actual elected officials, particularly at the national level. There is racial and ethnic diversity in one party and not <laughs> in another party. Um
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's part of, that's part of realism. That's part of what, you know, Roberts calls political realism, which is the idea that, okay, we live in a real world here. These are not easy answers. This is not simplistic. And to be honest with you, Jamar, I think that's the ministry of the witness. Mm. Ministry of the witness when it comes to abortion, when it comes to politics, when it comes to race, when it comes to the criminal justice system is to challenge the American church to think, about the reality and the fact that it's not that simple. It's not that simple. It's not. You can't simplify it. So I mean, when we're talking about Brand John and forgiveness, people are like, "Oh, you don't want to forgive." It's like, no, it's, it's no. But it's not that simple. It's not as simple as you're making it. Yeah. You know, when we talk about you know police brutality, it's like, oh, you just want it this way. It's like, no, we're just saying it's not that simple. When we talk about politics. We're just saying, hey, it's it's probably not that simple for us. And that's a function of the brokenness of the world that we live in. And that's the function of how sin has seeped into our our societies and sin has seeped into our structures.
2: Mm. And
1: so we can't ignore that. And so there's just, we could keep going for hours on this.
2: Yeah, we should have said at the top, like, this is the beginning of a conversation. This is the
1: beginning of a conversation, okay? This is part one of a conversation. We want to have a couple of conversations over the next few weeks to process to process what it looks like for Black Christians to engage politically, and also to be honest about crafting a Black political theology. I was mentioning this to one of our our church members, and I was like, "Man, actually, what we need is you know over the next few years crafting a Black political theology. Like, what does that look like? I don't know if we've really done that, or if that's something that churches know how to process and a rubric for them to think through." And so there's a lot of questions that you likely have, but I hope that you continue listening. I hope that you continue processing with us, because we're going to bring on some people who are much smarter than us, who know a whole lot more than we do. And we're going to hear from their perspective. We're going to listen. We're going to push back. We're going to challenge. And and hopefully we'll come to some sort of understanding and hope in the midst of it, because... We're going to have to participate in some way, shape, or form. And maybe it's bringing on some people who don't, who don't feel like you should participate. I don't know how you get there, but hey, there are some people who do. <laughs> Logically, hey, it's, it's all good. But I just want us to really sit in the reality that it's not that simple. It's complex, and it's always been complex for Black Christians. And we're having to navigate that. By God's grace, we are—we've been able to navigate that without mm. going extinct. Mm. You know, by God's grace, we're still here. Um, but there are some voices that we need to hear from, and some perspectives that we need to to center, and uh, that's what we're going to do here. Stay tuned.